Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm joined by Paul Fedes, Professor of Systematic Theology at the University of Oxford and author of the new book, Iris Murdoch and the Others, a writer in dialogue with theology. And we're going to be discussing that primarily on the podcast today. But Paul is also the author or editor of over 25 books, amazingly, including Charles Williams and C.S. Lewis, Friends in Co-Inherence, which came out with OUP last year. And there's another book out later this year, More Things in Heaven and Earth, Shakespeare, Theology and the Interplay of Text. And that's out with the University of uh, Virginia Press. I, I, you know, amazing. I don't know how you managed to get all these works together. I guess, um, you know, it, it's been uh, several years in the making. He's also a fellow of the British Academy and indeed much else besides. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. Uh, thank you, Miles. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, spending the next uh, hour or so with you. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to have a career that works at the boundaries of theology, literature and philosophy? Well, Mars, I do like your description, working at the boundaries of theology, literature and philosophy. Uh, of course, I hope I'm also crossing the boundaries. Of you are, yes, absolutely. So uh, how did I get here? Well, I, I began by reading English language and literature for an undergraduate degree at Oxford, and I followed that up with a degree in theology also at Oxford before embarking on doctoral work. And I soon came to realize that uh, theology wasn't a freestanding discipline. It always works in relation to other areas of study, history, literature, languages, philosophy, sociology, and so on. My speciality became what's usually called systematic theology. Uh, and I realized that for most people, systematic seems to mean uh, constructing a, a tight, enclosed system of thought. But I understand quite the opposite by it. I, I mean a connectional theology. Uh, I think it's exploring the way that theology connects. First, the way that all the different specialities within theology are connected, if they're biblical study or church history, practical theology, and so on. Uh, but then the way that theology connects with other disciplines of study, and, and most widely with the culture of our society and, and the world. I, so it's an open theology. And, and I, I've got a theological reason for thinking that theology should connect like this, Theology differs from religious studies because it has a place for revelation within it. Uh, I don't mean uh, a revealing of messages or propositions from God, but um, a kind of continual self-opening of God's own being to the world. So if the world lives in the presence of a self-disclosing God, then we can't do theology without asking where we find that divine self-opening in, in all sorts of areas of human knowledge, all kinds of faith and non-faith uh, and in culture generally. So when I was a principal of my college about 25 years ago, uh, um, uh, 25 years into my career, I should say, um, I created a, a research unit where this conviction could be worked out called the Center for Christianity and Culture. Uh, it tried to work at both um, an academic and, and a more popular level. And I'm glad to say it's still thriving. 
it's uh, now called the Oxford Centre for Religion and Culture. And um, if uh, listeners want, they could um, they could uh, look it up. Yes, yeah, we could certainly put the uh, put the link into the uh, into the podcast. Yeah, that'd be oh, that, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. So you started off with English literature. So did did you uh, did you come from a, a religious background at that point in time, or did it grow through um, study? How did that work? Well, yes, I did. I came from a background of growing up in a church. Mm. Um, I think my understanding of what religion and theology is developed quite a lot, um, partly through through reading literature itself and finding the place of imagination within uh, religious experience uh, and the way that poets and playwrights and novelists have found their imagination uh, working uh, in that way. And do you remember your first engagement with Murdoch's work? Well, I, it is a bit hazy. Right, it's been a while. <laughs> but I, I, I began reading uh, Murdoch's novels in the early 1970s. So that's, well, I have to say, that's about 50 years ago now. It is, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I know that among the, the first that I read was The Sacred and Profane Love Machine, which right. was uh, published in 1970. So I, I read it shortly after it appeared. Um, and then I, I read her following novels, more or less as they were published. So, mm -hmm. so I was part of that readership that was uh, waiting for new novels to emerge and uh, greeting each new novel with, uh, with pleasure. Uh, and then at the same time, I, I began to read in no particular order, uh, what you might call her back catalogue. Yes. <laughs> and, and then uh, I began reading her philosophy in the 1980s, beginning with The Sovereignty of, of Good. Mm. When I first published an essay on Iris Murdoch, which was in 1991, she'd um, published 24 novels uh, by then, and um, I'd read uh, some of them several times. Yeah. Yes. So I, I, I do remember what uh, really intrigued me in The Sacred and Profane Love Machine. Um, do you want me to talk? Yes, please do. Uh, yeah, because it's quite a vivid uh, memory, really, and has stayed, stayed with me and made me want to read more of, uh, of Murdoch's novels. So you'll know, of course, that the, the novel begins with a small boy of eight or nine standing outside a garden and staring in. And we learn that the house belongs to Blaise Gavender, a successful psychiatrist. And for the first 60 pages or so of the novel, we explore the life of this family living in a fashionable area of South London. And then the narrator switches the scene uh, to a rather squalid flat in a, in a very unfashionable area of London. Over um, the river, of course. Yeah. An unsuccessful school teacher called mm. uh, Emily McHugh. We learn that her son Luca is difficult to handle, awkward, introverted. And so we're exploring these, uh, these two different worlds. And then suddenly, casually, halfway through a sentence, we read, for some time now, Emily had been trying to persuade Blaze to go and see Luca's form master. Um, and with a shock, we discover that these two worlds actually connect. Um, Blaze has got two families unknown to his wife, 
Harriet and Emily is his mistress and Luca is his son. And so um, we, we, we get the sense that, um, uh, that Blaise thinks he's constructed two carefully sealed worlds around himself that only he crosses between. Um, and then we realize that this, this boy Luca has already um, punctured this, uh, this careful construction by, by looking into the house of Blaise uh, in, in his garden. Uh, and we ourselves as readers share um, in this sensation uh, that Blaise has that discovering that the occupants of these two worlds have got lives of their own, they're going to make demands on him, they can't be kept carefully locked uh, away like this. And of course, this is this is Murdoch's whole um, presentation of the way we try and make worlds around ourselves. We don't give attention to others. We, we try and control them by putting them in our own sealed universes. Uh, and that this has to be broken open. Um, this has to be interrupted. And uh, so I think the reader gets that sense of worlds being broken uh, by that, that, uh, that um, halfway through that sentence. Yes. Um, so I, th that stayed with me. And um, I, I think it's uh, um, why uh, Murdoch interested me so much at, at that point, though um, over the years, of course, I found many other aspects in, in her work that help a theologian to make to make theology. Did you um, did you have that sort of experience? And did you? I have did. I did. Yes. Yeah. yeah read, reading reading the bell um, and and coming into contact with an author who spoke to me about so many of my own interests and my own concerns and and how she conceptualized you know character you know conceptualized characters how she pr produced this work how she shuttled between London and Imber as mm. well. Um, yeah. I think Murdoch just gets it just gets it right, and I'm and I'm glad that you you've mentioned um, sacred and profane because it's not one that we've really covered very much on the podcast before, and it's certainly one that I think is perhaps um, not as well regarded and certainly not critically rated as uh, as many of the others. Mm. Um, so it, it, it's good to hear that that was one that um, in, inspired you, I suppose, and stayed with you, and obviously mm. you know, to, to, to have. Uh, and I suppose the reference to sacred and profane love, of course, for a theologian, this is. Uh, uh, this in it. itself yeah. is very interesting, and I uh, you can see Blaze, as it were, making these two worlds, one of which for him represents his sacred love, one of which for him uh, represents his profane love, and then finding that you can't actually compartmentalise things like yes. this um, at, at all. So uh, the title itself is very intriguing, isn't it? Um, yes, it's a very odd title, I think, compared to some of the other books that were being published yeah. at the time. But uh, oh, yes, yes it, it does capture, I think, the essence of Murdoch's thoughts quite well. Well, yeah, it was only, only later when I was reading more Simone Weil that I discovered um, how Weil talks about the way uh, we try to use machines to create the world around yes. us, how mechanistic life uh, has become. And you can see that. In the title, the sacred and profane love machine. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, what was it about Murdoch, uh, Murdoch's philosophy and indeed theological thought um, that kind of inspired you? I want to kind of come on to that because you said that obviously you started off reading the novels in the, in the very early seventies and mm. went back and read the earlier ones. Then you said you started to engage with the philosophical work. Did that strike a chord with you? Did you find a um, almost a 
and a, a correspondent, if you like, that you could really, you know, deal with. Mm. Well, of course, the theme of giving attention to others is so pervasive throughout Murdoch's work and comes actually from her early reading of uh, Simone Weil, though she puts her own spin on it. And um, perhaps we'll say more about that. I'm sure we will. Ab about that, about that <laughs> later. But uh, to whom do you give attention? Um, uh, for a theologian, supremely, we give attention to God, though God mm. isn't an object to be examined. God isn't, um, uh, can't be, as it were, ca categorized or classified in any way that you could say that God was an object of observation. Uh, God is always el elusive. And of course, this is what um, Murdoch is also saying about the good, which yes. for her um, largely replaces God. Um, so uh, there's this immediate uh, overlap between her philosophy, which is about giving attention to the good, and, and her novels, which are all about giving attention to others and about giving attention to the good uh, whom the others point to. So there is this coherence going on and this imaginative exploration of a, of a philosophical idea. Um, of course, you all know that she always denied that uh, she was writing philosophical novels. Um, Indeed, uh, yes. <laughs> I spent, I've spent some time thinking about that question. <laughs> yes, yes. And of course, she isn't, if by that you mean a novel that puts forward some theological proposition, which she wants, as it were, to force on, on the reader. But clearly, the characters and the plots are exploring different ways of... of, of uh, of understanding philosophical issues, but in a non-dogmatic way. They, they, they show them, they explore them, rather than, um, uh, as, as it were, um, projecting them onto the, on, onto the reader. So there is, there is this overlap going on all the time. And Murdoch's asking the questions that are very interesting to, to theologians. Yes, and I think even more so today than she was maybe 40, 50 mm. years ago. And which is where I think your new monograph, Iris Murdoch and the Others, comes in. And it does feel to me, obviously, you, it, it's not just about Murdoch, it's about Murdoch in, in conversation with others. And I'm sure we're going to talk about a number mm. of those. Include, we've mentioned Simone Weil, but there are other more traditional theologians and thinkers in the 20th century. It feels like it's been quite a long time coming, Paul. Could you uh, talk us through a little, a little bit about the development of the work? Well, I suppose it's come together over over at least 30 years. <laughs> because, uh, half the book is a revision of essays that I've uh, published previously. Um, since my, my first essay on Murdoch in 1991, but I've been rethinking and extending and linking these essays, in, in fact, connecting them, to use that word I'm very fond of for thinking about uh, theology. So in that very first essay of mine, um, for example, in a book called Freedom and Limit, I was already reflecting on Murdoch's references to the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a, a Lutheran martyr of the, of the Hitler regime. Mm. Uh, but there's so much more to say after many more years of reading Murdoch, especially after reading her big book on philosophy, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, which uh, appeared in fact a year later than the, um, that first essay uh, I wrote. Uh, 
and that throws a lot of light on her objection to Bonhoeffer's statement that God wants us to live as if there were no God, um, on why she thinks that's a misuse of words that she'd already uh, mentioned in an earlier book uh, on philosophy. Um, a great deal of the new material in, in the book derives from a, a closer study of Murdoch's reading of theology from 1960 onwards, uh, and uh, especially from reading the annotations that she made in the, in the margins of uh, dozens of theological works she read. And, and, and here, a word of thanks to the Murdoch archive at the University of Kingston for uh, allowing me access to, to her library. Uh, and permitting me to reproduce some of the results mm. of that of, of that research. Um, so as uh, this prompted me to think further about Murdoch's idea of, of the sublime that I, I first wrote about uh, 10 years ago, uh, and also uh, gave a new context, I think, for, for Murdoch's dispute with Jacques Derrida, uh, which I wrote about 2012, I think. So uh, also the book contains uh, a more sustained analysis of the relation between Murdoch and Simon Weil's thought that I'd uh, given earlier. Um, and what became clear to me was that she is in disagreement with Weil about the place of suffering and death in human experience, uh, as well as in this profound agreement about giving attention to, to others. Um, so uh, it also led me to my first study of Murdoch's penultimate novel, The Green Knight, which I hadn't, um, uh, which hadn't appeared when I wrote the first essay on Murdoch. Um, so uh, yeah, the book's been a long time coming. That's some of the history of its, <laughs> its, its genesis, certainly 30 years, more mm. probably, um, since my first reading of Murdoch 50 years ago. So uh, I hope you feel it's been worth the wait, Miles. I do, absolutely I do. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, absolutely um, great that you point out the, uh, the importance of the archive at Kingston because the marginalia and the underlinings and the other materials that you use from her original uh, theological works and indeed, you know, more beyond the theological as well, See, they they play a really important part in this in this work, don't they? To actually, you, mm. you get under the skin of Murdoch and, and try and find out what she was thinking, aside from the published work that came out in Metaphysics: The Guide to Morals mm. and uh, her other essays. Were there any particular works in the in the archive that you looked at that gave you a completely different reading of Murdoch, or, or kind of um, surprised you when you were thinking about Murdoch's sort of development of her own theological thought? Uh, well, I. I wouldn't say surprised, um, except in the sense that uh, what I thought she was doing, I did find confirmed in all sorts of ways, um, uh, very extensive annotations of um, Paul Tillich's theology, and um, which I knew was there, but not to the extent that I found it. And also um, of Donald McKinnon's writings, who was of course her early tutor in mm. philosophy and was a, a Christian philosopher of, of religion. Um, and uh, yes, the importance of McKinnon's thought to her became very clear. I think pages of notes 
um, in the blank uh, pages, the beginning and the end uh, of the books, which I don't think have ever been commented on. Um, and uh, uh, particularly concerning the presence of some transcendent reality that McKinnon talks about, which for McKinnon, of course, is the presence of God yes. um, and, and for, for Murdoch, certainly by this stage is the presence of the transcendent good. But this, this sense of a presence um, comes out from those, from those annotations. Um, and uh, they, they link up, of course, they're not in the annotations, but I think link up elsewhere with her sense of the presence of the mystical Christ that we might say something about later. Yes, I'm sure well. it will. Yeah, yeah, I mean, th these, these connections that you, you make, and as, as you mentioned, the, um, the, the marginalia um, in Murdoch's library has not really been touched to a, to a great extent, mm -hmm. especially as you mentioned the McKinnon, uh, McKinnon material. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, she did write in all her books, um, well, one difficulty is about her copy of uh, Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison. Um, and I do say quite a lot about her, um, her engagement with, with Bonhoeffer, because clearly she's bought a secondhand copy in which someone's already written. Ah. And so uh, it, it is a bit of guesswork at times to, to see what her annotations are and her <laughs> underlying yes. I think you know it. You can sort it out partly through the different coloured ink, actually. Yeah. Yes, and that that but, really um, is the, the granular detail that the researchers <laughs> get involved with. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great thing to do. So in in the in the book, you bring in um, you know a, a variety of discussion partners, and certainly the very diverse range of thinkers and from those she admired and loved, like Simone Weil, and you obviously have a section on that toward the end of the, the uh, of the work but although also to those she met but had little time for and you've already mentioned uh, Jacques Derrida and perhaps those she may have only briefly connected with um how did you already have these others in your mind or did mm. they kind of um present themselves as you were undertaking the, the reading and the research mm. well the the idea of the book is is to present Murdoch in dialogue with with theology and i in different places i've tried to construct this dialogue between literature and theology which i see as a, a two-way uh, process um in which theology um in which in, in the first place reading literature helps us to actually make theology not not just to illustrate it um but to to create it and that that really comes from this conviction about um God's self-revelation in the world. So reading literature actually help us to make theology. On the other hand, theology can provide, I think, a very important perspective for, for reading literature. So, so from the beginning, I had this in mind that I'd be um, writing about a, a dialogue of Iris Murdoch with theology. And uh, that's of two kinds, I think. There's first of all, the dialogue she herself was holding um, with theologians and uh, philosophers interested in theology, uh, in, in among whom I include uh, Jacques Derrida. Um, and on the other hand, uh, I, I'm setting this within the dialogue I myself am constructing between uh, Murdoch and theology. I hope the two, the two sorts of dialogue nest, as it were, within within each other. So some of the others in the book are important for Murdoch herself as, as conversation partners. Some she knew well, like uh, Donald McKinnon, 
Don Cupid, uh, perhaps John Robinson, the Bishop of Woolwich. Uh, one, as you mentioned, she met uh, briefly once, um, Jacques Derrida. Uh, others she met in her mind and on the printed page, like Simone Weil, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Paul Tillich, Rudolf Bultmann, and, and Martin Buber. Uh, and, and to those um, more modern figures, I, I add uh, two rather older figures, that Immanuel Kant and Plato, because she's in constant dialogue with both of, of those. Uh, and they did choose themselves, um, because it isn't possible really to understand Murdoch's central concerns uh, without them. Sure. But then I did add in two with whom she wasn't actually in dialogue herself, though she knows of them. And, uh, and that's the, um, the philosopher Julia Kristeva and the, and the Catholic poet uh, Gerald Manny Hopkins. Um, because I, I didn't think it was really possible to, con to make a dialogue between her and theology on the theme of the sublime and the beautiful, which she's very concerned about, without looking at, uh, at their contribution to this. So that belongs to the wider dialogue, uh, as it were. Sure. Um, do you want me to say something about particular conversation partners I mean you might um yes that, that would be great absolutely I mean that I think that would give put more flesh on the bones of the uh, of the uh, the outline that you've just given us it'd be great thank you okay well um do do stop me won't you <laughs> I will saying, don't worry I'm saying too much here but let, let me mention some of those dialogue partners and you know why they're they're helpful to to include so uh, Simone Weil well her ideas of giving attention to others, the decreation of the self, her reflection on the human experience of displacement from one's roots, um, affliction, the void, all these become central to uh, Murdoch's philosophical thought and are presented in imaginary ways um, in the novels. Um, so uh, there's also the way that um, theologians like Bultmann and John Robinson, Don Cupid and uh, Martin Buber uh, are engaged in a demythologizing, um, particularly of um, the being of God and the way this, this feeds into her, her own work um, when she's replacing a personal God with an objective transcendent good. Mm. She isn't exactly following any of them, actually, but they, they've certainly influenced uh, her thinking. Um, I mentioned earlier how she was fascinated by Bonhoeffer's comment that God wants us to live as if there were no God. And uh, it, it's important, I think, in understanding her thought to tease out uh, why she thinks that that kind of approach in her view, isn't really facing the crisis of the absence of God, which so many feel today. Um, I, I mentioned earlier Paul Tillich as well. Um, uh, his thought seems to become increasingly important uh, for her from the 1970s onwards. Um, she uses his particular variation on the ontological argument for the existence of God, for example, for, for her argument for the existence of the good. And uh, perhaps what's less noticed is that she takes up his imagery of the new being and of the abyss um, mm. in God and the abyss of faith um, 
for for her own thinking both in in philosophy and and in the novels um i mentioned donald mckinnon and his um uh, his insistence that we live in the presence of a transcendent reality um and uh, this very much as influences her affirmation that we live in the presence of the transcendent good for which we we can't escape um derrida yes you said uh, didn't she didn't agree with derrida um he he appears in in virtually every chapter of metaphysics uh, as a guide to morals, Indeed, yes. uh, as, as, uh, and um as well as having a whole chapter devoted to him uh, she says in one place that when she met him, this is once in America, she, personally, she liked him, <laughs> but he does increasingly become the, the kind of architectural philosophical enemy for her, um, mainly because she thinks, and um, I explain in, in the book, I, I think this is a wrong perception, that he fails to recognize any reality beyond the language of a particular text. And, and, and that means for, for Murdoch um, not struggling with the contingent realities of everyday life uh, and failing in the end to serve the good. And so he becomes a theological as well as philo philosophical enemy, actually. Um, so, um, Murdoch makes herself these connections with these theologians or philosophy theologians. And so um, you know, writing such a book, I inevitably um, needed to look at them. Uh, but I did introduce these two other um, others, the, uh, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins and the philosopher uh, novelist to uh, mm. Julia, Julia Kristeva. Um, and uh, this is really to do with her understanding of the sublime um, and and the beautiful, where Murdoch's really finding the sublime in the beautiful, the many objects of the beautiful, their uh, their multiplicity and complexity, um, rather than opposing the sublime to the beautiful, as as she found in 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 Kant, and. Um, so I try to show how um, um, Gerald Manley Hopkins, um, uh, in his concern for the particularity of things in the world, um, leads us to see how theology can make room for both the positive and the negative aspects of the sublime, as, as Murdoch is doing. Um, and. Uh, and then Julia Kristeva, her account of the sublime is, is, is much more to do with empathy with others, with the, uh, with the growth of, of forgiveness, um, which she finds symbolized in the passion of Christ, even though she herself is an atheist and is pleased to say that. Um, so uh, by bringing these into dialogue with, with Murdoch, I think this illuminates both Murdoch's own work uh, and also helps us to understand more what the sublime and the beautiful are. So uh, I, so those were two others I introduced into the conversation. Um, Murdoch actually does have a copy of Gerald Manley Hopkins' poems, or did have, um, but unfortunately I no annotations. Ah, 
uh, and she comments at, at one point um, on Julia Kristeva, whom uh, whom she thinks is uh, is part of a, a whole movement to do with women's studies that she's deeply suspicious about. Yes. Uh, so she certainly knows both about uh, Hopkins and Kristeva, but doesn't herself engage in in conversation with them. Yes, I can't think of any references to either of those in Metaphysics, the Guide to Morals. But of course, you know, the, the, uh, the theologians that, and thinkers that you mentioned earlier, all, you know, from Derrida and Tillich especially, yeah. how important they are to that thinking. And in fact, yeah. I think it's only from, from the names that you've mentioned, I think it's only Tillich who, and Murdoch who've had um, substantial work on the connections between them in the last yes. few years. Yes, don't you find it astonishing how... Uh, how Hopkins stress on the particularity of things, the thisness of things, the need to give attention to this is so much like it is. Um, yeah. Murdoch's own, mm. own concern for the contingencies, the particularities of things um, in in the world. Um, yeah, there is so little, you know, talk, talked about so far. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think I, you're a trailblazer in that regard. I, I do I do point out in in the book that there is an image they have in common that of the the kestrel the wind hover um, which appears in in Henry and and Cato as yes. a symbol of the Christ and the Holy Spirit um, and of course this is this is like Hopkins poem the wind hover um, I yes. I feel reading that passage that she must have that poem in mind but. Uh, I would I would say almost certainly, and I know that that has been commented on, but a kind of an extended discussion of the links between Hopkins, yeah. Thought and, and Murdoch's work has not as yet been done. So perhaps there's somebody listening who might want to take that on as a as a project. You never know. You might have inspired someone to do that. Oh good. Well <laughs> do read my chapter first. <laughs> of course. We will of course. That's the way to, that's the place to start. Um you also make a claim in the book. This 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 fascinated me because it's it's one of my one of my favorite late novels. You say that the Green Knight is her most theological. And, I th and, th and this got me really scratching my head because I thought, is it, um, you know, given that we've got, you know, in, in the back catalogue, as you say, the time of the angels, nuns and soldiers, Henry and Cato, to name, I think, but three, you know, and, and the bell as well. I think that's a really a sort of substantial claim to make in the book. So could you um, discuss that a little? Right, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've, uh, you've named the novels you have, um, and you mentioned uh, particularly Time of the Angels, Nuns and Soldiers, and Henry and, and Gato, because reading them together with The Green Knight uh, would give um, the reader a very good sense of the way that she's blending theology into her art. But I, I do want to stick by my claim, because I think that The Green Knight, um, her next to last novel, actually takes up all the strands of theology from those other three novels and weaves them together in, in a new way. So it might take just a little bit of time to explain this. Um, so would you indulge me? In, I'd, I'd love to indulge you. In, in doing that? Absolutely. <laughs> well, in the time of the angels, characters are discussing the question, can there be a single unitary good when the good is dispersed into many forces and entities in the world. And uh, Murdoch calls these scattered fragments of the good angels. And we know from her philosophical writings that she thinks these can in fact be signs of a good which has an objective existence 
as a unitary object of, of love. Um, and when we give them attention, they can alert us to give uh, attention to the, to the good. Um, it, it's her response to the, the, the death of God movement, I think, in the 1960s. I, I don't know whether you'd agree about that. And the wider movement of, of demythologizing. Oh, sure. So the, the yeah. present is the time of the angels because the notion of a single personal God has been smashed. What we used to call God has been dispersed into the process of the world. And the question is, uh, can good in this situation replace God and the central character Carol, a priest who's lost any belief in God, says, no, the angels can only be malicious, destructive forces. And uh, Murdoch, um, through her uh, plot and her characters, at least indirectly, says, yes, in fact, um, there can be a single good. Um, so that's the theological issue in time of the time of the angels. Can this kind of single objective good replace the the god who seems mm. to have been dispersed uh, in into the whole process of the world so in henry and cato um a theological question is discussed which uh, doesn't appear in the time of the angels um and it's this does the the story of the crucifixion of christ encourage a religion of sadomasochistic suffering um Murdoch believes that indulging ourselves in suffering um, may lead us to avoid the final fact of death. Um, Father Brendan says that human beings try to cheat death by suffering instead. Um, Cato thinks that, that Christ may have tried to cheat death um, in this way, um, but Brendan, like other priests in Murdoch's tales, uh, believes in a Christ who is not resurrected and so really has faced death. He doesn't think that Christ is escaping death. And death for Murdoch, of course, means not just the death at the end of life, but the death we have to face in the midst of life, the death of the ego, yes. the, um, uh, this fat, assertive ego, which is always trying to build a world around itself. Um, this is what has to be brought to death. Um, so it's it's death uh, in in these different different senses. Um, so uh, that that's the question: Do we use suffering to evade the need to face the reality of death, either at the end of life or in the midst of life, the death of the ego? Um, and and so we use suffering to to evade this. And is that what? The story of the cross of Jesus does for us, or does it show someone who's really facing death? Um, so, uh, in nuns and soldiers, a third theological theme emerges that um, elsewhere Murdoch calls um, the presence of the mystical Christ. And there's no trace of this in the time of the angels. And there's, there's a slight hint of it in in Henry and and Cato. When Christ appears to Anne Cavage um, in something that appears to be more than a dream, she reflects this is her own Christ, the Christ that belonged only to her, laser beam to her as if from infinitely far away. Um, this conversation between Anne and 
the Christ also um, uh, concerns this theme of facing death rather than indulging in, in suffering. Christ tells her, my, wound, my wounds are, are imaginary. So it's, it's only in the Green Knight, though, that we find a weaving together of all these three theological themes. Um, uh, so using this mythology of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, though, as one character says, rather mixed up. Um, <laughs> so the death of the self has to be faced at the point of the Green Knight's axe. The, the, uh, the knife of Peter Mir, even the baseball bat of, of Lucas. Uh, and this is contrasted with self-indulgent suffering in characters like uh, Bellamy, Harvey, Louise. Um, and, and Peter Mir, who's mysteriously uh, arisen from death, must nevertheless die. There is no, there is no resurrection. So there was a facing of death there. Um, but he he he's presented in the novel as as one of the one of the angels, as it were, from the time of the angels. He's a sign of the good, representing mediating the Christ, who is himself an avatar of the good, directing us to give attention to the good. And there's a, there's a great deal of angel uh, imagery going on here um, in in the novel. Um, and he functions this way as a sign of the good for Bellamy, who, who finally renounces the attempt to find meaning by inflicting suffering on himself and finds a positive answer to his question, which is, if we have a mystical Christ, can that be the real Christ? Is a mystical Christ good enough? So with immense subtlety, these three themes mm. are being um, woven together where they appear separately in these in these three um, previous novels. That's why I think it's the most theological novel in, in this dialogue that um, that Murdoch is holding with with theology and helps us to make our own theology. So I, what you, I know that you've written quite a lot about the Green Knight and um, have thought about this. Do you, um, do you think that that's a, a sound view? I think that's a fascinating view, Paul. I really do. I think, you know, the, the way that you spelt it out to me, I, I was just sitting here, you know, reminiscing, not having read all of them in the last year. Um, but I have, I have read, the, I read the, the Green Knight again um, four or five months ago for another podcast I recorded. And I was thinking, yes, this is making sense to me. I'm, I'm, be I'm being convinced here that actually... Uh, you know, we often often talk on the podcast about the late novels and how she's, you know, she's still re, you know, going over the same um, thematic issues that she has, some, you know, same imagery, same ideas. Mm. And yeah, I think, yeah, I, th I think I'm, 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 I'm pretty much there with you. I think I'd, I'd need to mm. go back and, and and look again, but I'd certainly mm. agree that um, you know those those particular images that you've picked out from the Green Knight. Mm. Um, are, are there and present and indeed do have resonances with the, with the much earlier novels. I'm also interested to think about the Green Knight in um, in conversation with Message to the Planet as mm. well. Again, one, one of the novels that hasn't had an awful lot written mm. about it. Um, about the, the imagery there about um, forms of desecularized uh, belief 
and particularly in uh, what we might think of shamanistic or pa and, and, and pagan beliefs as well. Mm. I think there's some interesting ideas to be to be picked up with there. And I think that brings me nicely on to the next question that I wanted to ask you as well. She says in a letter to her friend Ramal Kano that uh, not that I have finished with religion, mm. I haven't started yet. Mm. And I think it often feels to me that scholarship on medical theology is some way behind um, in academic discourse in, um, in, 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 in the field of medical studies. Uh, certainly when you compare it to the writers working on her literature and her philosophy. So I guess I wanted to ask you, where do you, where should we go with Murdoch and what more needs to be discussed and debated? And I think from the conversation that we've had today, it seems like there is an awful lot more that needs to be done. Mm. Well, in that, uh, yes, uh, that fragment of a, of a letter from, I, I, I think, 1953, I think Murdoch might just as well as said that she hadn't finished with theology yet, as well as yes. as as well as with uh, religion. And um, I'm reminded that the final the final sentence of her last book on philosophy uh, lays down a challenge to fellow philosophers when when she wrote, "We need a theology which can continue without God." Uh, so it is. Uh, I think um, a challenge for us to think how we could um, pick up uh, what she's saying there um, and uh, and reflect on it in terms of her own own work. Um, it, it's it's surely not surprising there are more people writing about philosophy in um, Murdoch than theology. I mean, she was a professional philosopher. Indeed one of a significant group of women philosophers who virtually kept philosophy going in Oxford um, after the Second World War. Um, uh, and she herself regarded moral philosophy as uh, a kind of theology, working with questions of ultimate concern to humanity and felt that um, the prevalent um, linguistic and analytic philosophy really couldn't deal with this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure the, the, the anecdote that um, she proposed a piece for a series of, of essays in honour of the Oxford philosopher Philippa Foote, who'd been a, a close friend of hers, and Philippa herself turned it down mm. on the grounds that it was too theological. Yes. <laughs> so um, so I've, I've, I've tried in the book to um to outline the large range of theology that that Murdoch read and carefully annotated and I am aware there's a lot there that's just briefly mentioned um and from what she writes herself and from the annotations in her own books um there are perhaps three areas I could mention that I I think need further exploration yeah, and the, the first is what she means by the presence of the mystical Christ especially uh, in relation to her comments on the thought of uh, Donald McKinnon and her interest in the early 1970s on Buddhism. It seems to me there are you know, all sorts of intersections there that need to be, to be explored. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, I think, really, that, that since she clearly rejects the notion of a personal God um, uh, uh, and using of any personal language in, with regard to God, that, when she, when she wants to talk about her experience of the transcendent, um, we're, we're back to a kind of personal language with the mystical Christ. A, a second area is um, 
I, I think, uh, though it's often mentioned, there needs to be, I think, more examination of um, the way that she converts the ontological argument for the existence of God into an ontological argument for the existence of the good. Um, that really, I think, does need unpacking you know, what's going on there. Um, and uh, a, a third area, I, I think, is the way that she's um, developing the idea of, uh, of, of Tillich about the new being, um, taking into account much more uh, the marginalia that she writes in his systematic theology. So those are some ideas. I think in terms of historical research into Murdoch's early engagement with Christianity, I think more about her retreats at Morling Abbey in the late 1940s uh, would be would be useful. And um, uh, and her membership of the High Anglican discussion group called the Metaphysicals, and I know that you yourself are, are engaged in that. That seems to me to be a tremendously rich area of, of exploration. It's certainly um, one of uh, a number of projects that I'm currently uh, considering, I would say. <laughs> I've done, you know, I'm very, at, the, at the very beginning of, of thinking about that, that, right. that uh, kind of intersection of the, uh, the theological and the biographical. Yeah. So those are some of the directions I think that uh, further work on on um, on Murdoch might might take. Yes. Yeah, and from our conversation, it feels very much that um, you're suggesting that as she developed in her career, both philosophically and um, and, and as a as a fiction writer, which that um, certainly as she reaches the the, the high point of, of metaphysics guides morals, that theology and philosophy become part of the part of the same um discussion they become mm. much more closely interwoven yes well um at the very end of metaphysics as a guide to morals she says well yes um what do i mean by theology I, I do mean moral philosophy but as long as you include within that this concern for um for the ult ultimate the unconditional that which ultimately concerns us. If you include that within moral philosophy, then we're talking about moral philosophy as theology. That language of ultimate concern, by the way, comes from, from Tillich and, and she quotes Tillich deliberately in that very last uh, paragraph Indeed, yeah. of, of the metaphysics. Um, so yes, they, they, they are interwoven and it's, it's partly, I think she's using theology as, as a critique of the kind of the barrenness that she finds in much philosophy. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, this, um, uh, her dissatisfaction with the linguistic and the analytic approach in, in philosophy, um, her desire to ask the big questions. So I think theology is, is helping to open up really for her what she feels is really important in philosophy, as well as, as, well as her taking her philosophical mind, uh, analytic philosophical mind, to ask questions of, of theology. So very much uh, a two-way street yeah. in that regard. In the writing of the book, obviously she um, makes a, a, a very substantial claim that from the sort of mid, early to mid-50s onwards, she, she uh, very much moves away from personal uh, belief in a personal God and is, you know, a confirmed atheist. Do you think that that, considering the, the amount of work that you've put in over the, not just the last few years writing this book, but over the last 30 years, that that actually stands up now? 
Um, do you mean as an uh, as a as an analysis of Murdoch yes. or the, or the movement of thought itself? I, I guess do you, she, she. I would certainly say that she couldn't leave um, theology alone. Yeah. Do you think then that um, her claim to be as you know, a, a staunch atheist um, holds water? <laughs> Uh, well, she's clearly a very spiritual writer. Yes. Um, and I, I think she's she's struggling, as it were, with some some inconsistencies. I mean, one argument she has, an important argument for replacing God with the good, is that God is really a symbol. A personal God is a symbol for the good. And so we can dispense with this personal language um, and and use language of the good instead. But then she also admits that language of the good is itself symbolic. It's um, it's metaphorical for ultimate reality. And so there's a kind of inconsistency here uh, about dispensing with personal language about God at the same time using symbolic language uh, about the good for what ultimately concerns us and I she realizes that and she's actually struggling with that now I think she's as a theologian I think she's absolutely right to dispense with the knowledge of God as a person as some kind of supernatural person a supernatural personal being um uh, I think uh, many, many theologians think that this is uh, objectifying God, as I do myself. But it's different from saying that personal language about God is appropriate for talking about that which is our ultimate concern. and We really can't do without it. Um, and I, so uh, this absolute distinction between language of God and language of the good I think does break down in her in her own thinking as soon as she recognizes that talk of the good is itself appropriate or symbolic language. Um, and uh, I think we can go back to Simone Weil, who is using language both of the good and of God, uh, finds it possible to use both languages um, at, at once. There's this simple replacement of one set of language by another, uh, I think doesn't hold up along the, the lines of what language is. Any language about ultimate reality is going to be symbolic and metaphorical. So you have to have, I think, good reasons for simply discarding a set of languages, which may actually be very useful to us, namely personal language. And of course, it's to Simone Weil that you return at the end of your new book to uh, to consider these questions yes yes and i and i i think simone ve you know, does remain with murdoch cons consistently um because she's precisely grappling with them as we come towards the end uh Paul, i always ask my guests to recommend something for um, the listeners to to go away and pick up and read if they uh, maybe, maybe they um, have already read it maybe they haven't but um if, so, if we've got some listeners who are new to Murdoch's theology, could you recommend a good starting point? Uh, well, in Murdoch herself, um, I think the, the best thing is to read a novel and a philosophical essay together. And the novel, I think, would be The Time of the Angels, uh, despite what I, I've 
said about um, about the Green Knight. I think I would start with the time of the angels, and the and the essay would be her essay on God and good, which you can find either in the Sovereignty of Good um, or in it's been reprinted in the volume called Existentialists and and Mystics. And these this novel and this essay were written within three years of each other. Um, I've already discussed the fact that the that um, the, the the characters in her, in her novel are asking, um, uh, can we replace God with the good? It's not a dogmatic answer that's given. It's exploring different ways of looking at it. And the essay asks whether we can replace God with the good. And the essay answers quite firmly that we can, whereas the novel is, is helping us to explore the issue without having the answer forced on us. Um, and the plot, I think, and the characters show what happens when you um, take a particular answer uh, to the question. Um, so I would, I would put those two together as and a way of starting with Murdoch. Would, would that I would agree. seem to you to be? I would, yes, I would. Um, and I, take? Yes, I, I think that's a, it's a great book to start with. Um, it's one of my favourites. Um, again, we haven't had a podcast on that particular novel yet, but we will at some point. Um, it's one I it's one I teach actually uh, to my final mm. year undergraduate students as well, and I get them to read so, a little bit of philosophy, even though they're they're English literature students. Uh, whether they thank me for that or not, <laughs> some do, some don't. Um, but no, it's um, it's it, I, I would agree it's it's a good place to start. Uh, Paul, it's been wonderful to have you with me today. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, there will be a link um, in the uh, on the podcast. Uh, to the new book, uh, which has um, just been published by um, by TNT Clark, and um, all that remains for me to say is uh, thank you very much, Paul, for coming on, and thank you to everyone for listening. Well, thank you for having me, Miles. I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Good, as have I.